0: If you've got a Bible, could you please turn to the book of Numbers in chapter 3? And uh, what Peter didn't know was actually that I'm going to speak on priests (laughs) and priesthood. So uh, thank you, Peter. It was a bit of a shock to me. because I thought you were going to nick me sermon. Uh, and you don't know how close you were. Uh, but actually, for me, it's, uh, it means that it, it's, uh, it helps me uh, no end. Uh, Numbers chapter 3, verses 3 to 15. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him, and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and keep guard over all the, over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are ho- to be wholly given to him from among the people of Israel." And you shall appoint Aaron as his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, they shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from amongst the people of Israel, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb amongst the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for the firstborn are mine." On the day that I struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn of Israel, both men, man and beast. They shall be mine, uh, says the Lord. If you're a visitor, we're going through um, a series on the life of Moses. And uh, now what we've done is we've come to uh, the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is just really about God and the people in the wilderness. And the themes are magnificent. In fact, uh, the, the great hymn, Guide Me, O Je- Thou Great Jehovah, actually came right out of this book. So if you want to know uh, whether the book is inspiring, it is inspiring because it causes some of our great hymn writers to pen great hymns. It is a book that can speak to us. And will actually point us towards Jesus, which was what Peter uh, was implying uh, when he was talking about the priestly garments. And though the focus of history that's recorded in chapters and Chapter 1 and chapter 2 is descriptive of numbering and arranging of tribes of Israel and appears to be very mundane material from, well, from, from you know, the perspective of, of sort of looking at it and thinking, truth, this is a bit boring. Um, it, has, it, it is actually all about God. You think it's about numbers, but actually the book is about God. And even in the instructions of numbering, if you just step back a bit and look beyond the organizing, you'll actually see the phrases of, and the Lord said, and the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord did. So right throughout this sort of very practical numbering, not, I've still got that on there, it shouldn't have that. See, I'm just rubbish at PowerPoint. All the stuff that, he, that goes on about the sort of minute detail the focus is on God. And sometimes, just sometimes, we can, we can elevate the, the minor detail and forget we're about God. And that's a good challenge for you personally. Has minor detail so become the thing that's focused in my mind? If we're going to build anything, folks, we've got to forget minor detail, we've got to do it well, but we've got to make sure that God... He's on the top of the minor detail, not the minor detail on top of God. But here's the thing, that even in that detail, here was God speaking to his people. So even as we gather, I want to ask you, you know, do you have an excitement that God will speak to you? Is there something that's just pumping there? God's going to speak to me today. So in anticipation, (laughs) the heaven, the God of heaven and earth is going to just incline his ear towards me and communicate with me. Is that our expectation when we meet? I would like us to make it our expectation. I'd like us to have that sort of thrill. That even in the numbering, the ordering, the sorting out, that we can find our God breaking through and speaking to us. But he not only speaks, he saves. You'll find early on in those chapters 1 and 2 the description of, uh, of that uh, that he reminds them that they were a children that came out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. And uh, that's right, we must always remember that, that we are a people who have been saved. Uh, so I, it just got to me today. I'm ever so sorry. Salvation got to me. And I just thought, Oh, blow it. I'm just going to just stay there for a while. Because it just was for a second. I think Peter did it. He He said, I got choked. Do you know, we need to be choked more often with the salvation that we've been given. If it doesn't affect you, it should. Because it is the most wonderful gift that you will ever experience. Let salvation get to you. Let the journey of out of Egypt to Mount Sinai thrill your heart again. Let it do something in you. Let it move you. So, here's the God who speaks to his people, reminds them of who uh, he saves. But he is incredibly faithful, reliable, and you can see that he's in charge because here's the outstanding fact that seventy people from the Jacob's family go down into Egypt. Just seventy. Just a little bit more than we are now. They pile up. Actually, heads bowed down, been in famine, that sort of stuff, arriving into Egypt where they're going to be rescued. Here's the outstanding thing. As we speak right now in Numbers chapter 1, we're told that there are 603, 550 fighting men at the foot of Mount Sinai. Seventy! To 603,000 by the grace of God. What can God do with us? He can turn us into half a million fighting men for him. That's the God that I want to follow and be with. 70 of the worst. Heads down. Famine. Oh no. We've got to go and beg in this foreign land. They become... Over half a million crack-fighting men for this nation. I believe that's our destiny, folks. I believe that's what we've been called to. I believe that there is something of that tenor we need to get into our blood. God once said to Abram, Believe me, Abram. Because I will make your descendants more numerous than the sand in the desert, more numerous in the stars in the sky. And here is Moses looking out on a people and seeing 603 fighting men. And he's saying, this fills me with faith. This fills me with something. Because this was, I am standing in a fulfillment of a promise. That must have made the hairs on the back of his neck stand up as he remembered that promise. And he stood there and th- think, I'm looking at, what? 600, no, part of it. Part of it. Because we will become the fulfillment of that. Because the glory of it is that the, around the world, a multitude of people who call on the same God as Abraham through Jesus. A number that no man can number. That's what the Bible says. No man can number will stand before the throne of God. He said to Abraham, I will bless you and multiply you exceedingly. It's quite strange, isn't it? Could you just define exceedingly? No man can number. You know, when I look at that, I think if this is the God who saves if this is the God that does this, I can rely on him to do this in Wales. Yeah. This is not a problem, is it? Mm. You know, 70 people and a desert experience and captivity in Egypt. And, and no, I can, we can believe him for great acts of salvation. Amen. And if you look at it, when you look at all these different things, he's the one who's in charge here. He's the one who's giving the instructions. And they're just saying, okay, we'll follow it. It's just really quite... If we obey what he says, we get blessed. You know, sometimes you think it's, you know, we've got the most simple and yet hardest thing that we have to do as Christians because the simple thing, the simple thing is, obey it and you're blessed. Don't obey it And you struggle. Mm. Which one do you think then? And yet it's a toughie, isn't it? And yet it is so simple. I'm saved by grace. I get my blessing if I obey it. So here it is. Come on, guys. Just obey it. Be blessed. Don't don't not obey. But if you look at it, what we find also is that he is present with them but his presence is extremely pure and holy he dwells right in the middle of the people the tabernacle is situated smack in the in the in the middle of the camp of israel when the children move where is god is in the middle of them but he's on the move in a tent with them he's right there we need to know that when we move God's with us when we're what we're doing, God's with us. Keep it in mind. But what sort of God have you got in mind? You know, sometimes it's sort of, you know, I'm just moving arm in on, on with my mate. And just moving on with you know, that sort of stuff. And it's great to know the familiar side of, of God. Great to know that He's your friend, He's a friend of sinners. He's a he's 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 come and stood with you. He's called you into His family and said, Come on, my son but actually, if you looked at this, and you looked at the picture of the tabernacle, I think they say there's about 1,000 yards between the, 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 uh, the, the place, the tent, and the people. A 1,000 yards. Well, there's practical sides for that. The reason is that when you've got 2 million people on the move, you need big spaces. Because big spaces in tented people, they go to the loo an awful lot, apparently, Apparently you might have done that this morning but you don't have to go into the details. But can you imagine if you were just 2 2 million people moving by tent? Can you imagine what you would do with all that stuff? So you need big gaps, okay? Let's just put we're just going to be honest together, okay? Need big gaps. And also, you don't want the most holy place, do you, to be polluted by you lot. So we need a thousand yards, okay? Because you're not going to ruin and make the, the, the most holy place the smelliest place. So we need a thousand yards. That's just the practical side of it. And also, when you get in your tent and you do your cooking and all that sort of stuff, what do you do with your rubbish? Well, we just heave it out the tent, don't we? You know, we just sort of like London in the middle, you know, out the window, that sort of stuff. So you need big gaps. But because we wanted the tabernacle to be uh, or the, and the tent to be the, the most holy place, there was a good gap of a thousand meters. So it didn't smell and there was no rubbish. But also, there was another reason for that. It was that they wanted, that Moses wanted you to know and God wanted to you to know that this actually was a holy place and God was a holy God. That's why when you read this, you read that it said that, uh, that actually if somebody got into that, the wrong people got into that, they would die. They would die. So yes, he's near. Yes he's, yes, he's holy. Yes, he's your friend, but he's also pure. And we need to keep those balances. So even in the mundane stuff here, we're learning about God. And we're learning what type of God whom we serve well but we ought to get into the passage but i want to just do three things before we get there first of all is to give you some rubbish and here it comes did you know that the there is more reference to the to uh to the levites in the book of numbers that actually in in the book of leviticus leviticus okay you're impressed with that And this will keep you from sleeping tonight as you go through every reference in Numbers and every reference in Leviticus to see whether it's strange but true. Leviticus representing these people and this tribe and all that sort of stuff actually says less than Numbers does. There you go. Somebody's going to go back and check that now, aren't you, tonight? That's true. Second thing is, here's an interesting thing, and we'll apply this in a minute. That the priestly and the Levitical ministry is just given to one tribe. It's and the reason for that is that they didn't want it to be they didn't want the position to become (coughs) sold or they didn't want it to be bargained with. They didn't want it to become promotion. They don't want you to see it in that terms. And it isn't that, you know, I I leave my engineering job and I do this and I've been promoted. No. That, that isn't the, the way that it was. And, the, and this was in the, the heart. And if you look at it, there are some strange things because it's this one tribe of people. And it didn't matter how wonderful you were. If you were born in the tribe of Issachar, you, you didn't get to do this. You couldn't be a priest. And it didn't matter how wonderful you would be, Rupert, but if you were born in the tribe of Judah, you couldn't do it. There was only one tribe that could do this, and this was the tribe of Levi. They were going to do it. So why is that? Why, did, why is it that we've got this thing about the Levites? What is it about the Levites? Well, it is simply this, that they were the original Cardiff city supporters. <laughs> no, that's rubbish. But let's try and explain why. It's simply that the Levites themselves are our opening picture of god's election and salvation and serving they are opening up to us a picture of what we will be it's the tribe of levite they're just chosen by god they're chosen not by moses not by aaron not by a vote not by a ballot not by a suggestion but by god and that's simply it that's that's how we come into it we're just Chosen by God. It is extraordinary, but there it is. But not only are they chosen by God, they're actually chosen to serve. To serve. And the problem that occurs now is that we get into a theological debate. I'm going to go over it quickly, and then we'll move on. This is the theological debate about this. When you're talking about people, about salvation and serving you get a a problem that has occurred for two thousand years i'll tell you the problem then you'll think about it all through my sermon you won't remember anything else i said because you'll be wrestling with this please forget it we'll just move on okay here we go this is the problem it's the problem of the doctrine of election or god's choosing of people for salvation here's what you'll hear you'll hear sometimes that god chooses us not for salvation that we choose him for salvation and and that he chooses us to serve therefore we choose him for salvation and then he gives us a work to do if you want to go into that that's the doctrine of arminianism but that's basically what it is. We chose God for salvation and then he chose us to serve. It's a popular argument. It comes out of this. This is where it begins. This is where the argument theologically began. The biblical response to this is that I don't believe that's true because if you look at the Levites here, if you look at them, sorry Timon I'm laughing. But you see, you, see, you, you were born quoting Calvin. You came out in hospital saying tulip, okay? Those were your first words. But other people don't understand this, okay? And you had Calvin's little funny hat on as well, because we've seen the photographs. Here's our response to this. If you look at the Levites here, it appears that God chooses them... Not just chooses them, but chooses them to serve. In fact, what we see is that you can't separate chosenness from serving. You choose, you are chosen, and you serve. It's not that we separate, oh, well, I, don't, I just got given this. No, these are not alternatives. These are the package deal. When God chose us, he chose us to serve. If we don't serve, the, what was the point in us being chosen? That's the issue, isn't it? Well, I've just chosen. I'm just a wonderful floating child of God. No, you're not. You are chosen by God for purpose. That's the issue. And the Levites are the living, breathing, walking picture of that. They are chosen to serve and we are the living breathing walking talking picture of the levites we are choked in high. we are chosen we are chosen to serve okay so you've got it there's the theological thing so as we look at the passage i want us to look at um, several things i want us to look at redemption substitution lordship and and um, about priestly stuff And you think, how's he going to get that in in 10 minutes? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm not. You're just going to have your lunch burns. But no, we will. I'll do my best. So let's have a look at some of those things. What I want to do is that I want to look at them in reverse order. So uh, if you like, we're going to build up. It's like, you know, and in third place tonight (coughs) is Andan. In second place, you know, that sort of stuff. It's just like, so I want you to think of the points like X factor, okay? Or sort of the dance-off in Strictly, all right? Okay, that's where we are right now. So we're just working with the crowd at the bottom. We're going to go up. We're going to finish on Peter's final points, which he said it, and I don't know why I'm going to say it again. Because he said it much better than I. So, okay, God's lordship or ownership of his people. What is stressed there in the second half of verse 12 is who do the Levites belong to? And what you can see is that they belong to the Lord. Verse 12, the Levites shall be mine. Now, we see in the passage that God talks and says, look, they've been given to Abraham and they're, they're sort of like the assistant ministers. They're in the team, but they're not leading the team. He's doing that. Yes, we can see all of that. But ultimately, they belong to the Lord. That's who they belong to. The whole shooting match, they were born, they were chosen to belong to the Lord. That was the thing that's behind it. And this is a biblical lifestyle teaching that we need to just rediscover sometimes. That we belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. And this is where we're going with this. The Levites uniquely belong to him. We uniquely belong to him. Of course, that's just, it's not just the Levites. Because if you look at the whole people of Israel itself, you see that they, they all belong to God. And of course, in 1 Peter 2, well, it says about of us, you will become a kingdom of priests. You're the priests. You Belong to him. You uniquely belong to him. So you belong to him. You are called by him. And you serve him. Simple, isn't it? There it is again. And you see that even in Jesus. When he's describing this. He he says this in John um, chapter 11 it is my meat to do the will of him who sent me when I was little I used to think that verse was rather strange because I used to think it referred to sort of chicken or, or but he can't refer it to pork can it because this was Jesus <laughs> but I used to think it is I, you know, I used to think you know if, if it's my I, I get a chicken if I do well you know that's that's my <laughs> so you've never belonged to strict Baptist churches so you just think these things it's just the way that it is and And it was literally this, that what happened for him was this, is that there was a discovery for him, and he's explaining this, that it is an incredible thing to know that you are owned by your father. Because you say, I am chosen. I'm here to serve. I am yours. And the meat thing, it's become my feast. I live on the fact that I want to serve you, that I am yours. It's the thing that thrills me. It's the thing that I want to get right. It's the thing that that I I want to be able to do much, much better. That my whole life, my feast, as it were, is concentrating on this one thing that actually I'm owned by him. I, I live for that. What does that mean? It meant that what Jesus was doing here, when he's explaining this, you say, every decision that I make, every thought that I have, every hour in the day, everything that I'm moving towards, what happened yesterday, and what happens tomorrow, and what will happen in my life, is basically concentrated on this one feast, and this one feast is that I'm owned by him. And do you know, if that doesn't stick in the centre, it becomes a tension. Well, you know, now I'm owned by these thoughts. Oh. But then, then God says, hold on, you're owned by me. And there's a tension, there's a pastor, Well, I can't do that. Why can't you do that? Because, because I'm owned by God. Well, actually, I know I'm owned by God, but that's Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. But actually on Friday, and you see this tension occurred. And sometimes we have to come to it and we have to say, no, Lord, I am owned by you. Therefore, I'm yours. You can do with me whatever you choose to do. Here's a good strict Baptist thing. I was brought up on a hymn. Phil, you can't sing it at the end because we're going to move on. The hymn was, the hymn had a line in it, I surrender all. Do you remember, Phil? I surrender, I surrender You're all looking at me thinking, rather strange. But just so that you can do this, Phil's now going to stand and sing that chorus. Okay, Phil, ready? You don't lie. (laughs) But it goes like this anyway. I'm not going to sing. It says, all to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. In other words, that I have become, because I am chosen, because I'm here to serve, I am an open, knowing embrace, embracing picture that he owns me. I live thinking he's... He owns me. I am not my property any longer. I'm his property. I don't know. How do you live? What, what's, what, you know, who who really does own you? Does he own you? Do you live as if you are the property of Jesus Christ? What these Levites come, came to understand is they understood that they were there to do his will to do his bidding to do exactly what they he had called them to do and i want to ask you that question right at the outset are you living as if you are owned by jesus christ secondly substitution substitution That's something that usually happens in about 80 minutes when you're losing the game and you need to put two guys on to win it. Or it's another doctrine. Verse 45, take the Levites instead of the firstborn from among the people of Israel and the cattle and the Levites instead of the cattle. The Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. The biblical doctrine of substitution. I don't know if you've noticed in this passage how it explains the principle, but it's there. Every time a father of a firstborn went near the tabernacle and went to the tabernacle to offer sacrifice, every time, he would have been reminded of this. When he saw the Levites there, and he saw the priests there serving the Lord, doing their different bits that they needed to to do, he would stop and think, if this Levite was not there, if this priest wasn't there, that would have been my firstborn son. That's my son. And he would have gone back, and he would have remembered the Passover, And he'd have remembered that when God saved them out of Egypt, he saved them on a night when all the firstborn of Egypt died except theirs. Except theirs. And when he did that, he said, now all the firstborn belong to me. They belong to God. God. And now in front of us, in a practical demonstration of that, we have 22,273 of them, the firstborn. Verse 43. And you imagine the dad. And he's looking at these Levites and he's thinking, that should be my firstborn. It's him. He is taking the place of what my firstborn should be. It is a picture of substitution. The trouble was that the picture was all around them. And it was pointing them to something much greater because the principle of substitution was in their homes, it was in their ceremonies, it was everything about them. You think about this. That every time there was a sacrificial ceremony, when they took an animal and they laid their hands on the animal, they took the hands off the animal and the animal was slaughtered. It wasn't because the animal had sinned. The animal had done nothing. Sorry. The animal had done nothing. What had the animal done? The animal just happened to bleat or moo or whatever it did at the time or, or coo. Whatever it did. Poor thing. But every time that this sort of thing happened and her throat was slit, and, and, and all the goriness that we think, that what they would have done is that they would have thought, this is in my place. The whole picture of substitution was around them. When they got the little dove, whether they got the little lamb, whether they were in front of the, the, the Levites, everywhere they went in regard to their society, they would see this, that something was replacing them. Something was replacing them. Them in the place of the animal. Them in the place of the firstborn. He in place of me. That was how they lived. He in place of me. As they wandered through, we were just reminded time and time again. Because of the way that we have dishonored God and belittled His glory, there hangs over every one of us a curse. A righteous and just sentence of condemnation. And what Jesus did was that he took the curse and the condemnation upon himself and it became the substitution for my sin. And as they went through the desert. With the animals and the Passover and now the Levites, they were reminded that one day there would be an incredible demonstration of substitution. And it wouldn't just be for one people winding their way through a desert. It would be for all the peoples on the earth. And it would be one man that would sacrifice absolutely everything for the whole of nation all the way through history. And not just that one animal after another after another and another firstborn after another firstborn. But it would be one man who would do it for all. 1 Peter 3 verse 10 says this, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That he might stand in my place. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For our sake God made him to be sin. Who knew so? No sin. We get worried. Poor dove. Poor dove. What's the dove done? What had Jesus done? He had done nothing. He was spotless, pure, righteous, and yet he had to bear my sin, my sin upon him, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. That is balmy. It is outstanding. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us. What from? The curse of law. What happened? He became the curse for us. He was our substitute. So the way Jesus saves us from our sin is becoming our substitute. He bore the, cor- the curse so that I wouldn't have to bear it. He bore the sin so that I wouldn't have to bear it. He stood in our place. Isaiah 53. God laid on him the iniquity of all, all who believe. All. All. I should have got there, shouldn't I? Oh, well. The provision for redemption. For the firstborn are mine. And on that day I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I consecrated them for my own firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine, said the Lord. And then again in verse 46, the ransom of uh, 273 of the firstborn sons of Israel who are in excess beyond the Levites, you shall take five shekels. There's a principle that is beginning to open up here of ransom redemption of buying back I've, we've accepted that there was a substitute but now we are been asked to consider not was there a substitute but there was more than just a substitute that there was going to be, have to be a price to pay for the substitute and here the Levites and the firstborns and, and all that sort of stuff we see it quite clearly because the price is just five shekels we can do a deal room you know what, what can we sort? How uh, can we sort this? I oh, know five shekels that will do. Five shekels. So if you, could, if I just give you my account number, you can pay the five shekels and we are clear. Okay. Just five shekels to redeem yourself. Five shekels, just a bit, a few loose coins, that sort of stuff. That will redeem you. Five shekels. and we see that there is a redemption there something that is paid for and then we look at it and think they had to pay 5 shekels and Jesus came and paid all that i owe for me all that i owe for me you know even before and and behind History. There's a father who loved, and a father who sent, and a father who gave, and a father who did not spare, and a father that was going to give his son at a cost so that I might be saved. The cost of redemption. What would you consider to be the cost of your redemption? Five shekels? Six? 10? How about if I went to Angie and Andy's right now and said to Andy and Angie, you've just had Miriam or even Hannah and Jonathan, who've just had Naomi, and said to them, I just need to redeem a bunch of people, and I need a price for it. And these, these are the bunch here. They're in the address list at Gateway Church Wrexham. And what I need to do that is that I need to take your newly born baby Miriam the baby that i held in my arms this week with not a cry and it's unusual and you know looking at me i might anybody cry but it's just this 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 big please would you give me your baby so that i can murder it so that you can live Can you imagine the reception that I would be given at the Romsey family home with that appeal? (coughs) But it's not just for a 50 people. This is for all history. And now can I take you to the throne room of heaven itself where the Holy Spirit and the Son and God the Father are thinking, how can we redeem a people throughout history? and together they make one decision and they say your life will do it if you were the father how would you bear that for the son of man came also also came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with imperishable things such as silver and gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought with an extraordinary costly price. So glorify God in your body. Revelation 5 verse 9. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So the way to understand the death of Christ is to see that we have been given our life not only by substitution, but by a price. But the question is, theologically speaking now, Tim, we're back to Calvin now. Who paid the price? Okay, so just sit up for a minute. You can sleep again in a bit while. Okay, this is just for you, Tim. Who paid the price? This is another theological debate because some people believe that Satan had to be paid a price. And some people believe that God. This is the theological debate. We move on to the final in a minute. So I'll just be short with this one. So I think it's contrary to God's sovereignty to think that, that God would have to meet the demands of a rat bag, do you? And contrary to, to his holiness to think that he would have to deal with a dirty rat bag to pay his price. I don't think he should communicate it's like sort of I know that we can't get this into our own mind it's like the issue of dealing with terrorists isn't it really I'll I'll meet your terms but actually, Mark 3:27 describes Jesus how He releases people from Satan's bondage and how God, how he, he binds the strong man and plunders. In other words, in other, it, it plunders his household. In other words, God invades, God binds, God delivers from Satan. He owes Satan nothing, and who does he think he is to think that he does? I called you a ratbag. You are a ratbag. So then, where does the ransom go? I think we have to say that in sending his son to die for our sins, God paid the ransom to himself. That's all that you can come up with. In other words, we don't owe anything to Satan and God doesn't owe anything to Satan and the debt that, that was there was dealt with to God. To God. The reason, the, re, the reason that we can live free, the reason that we can lift up our heads, the reason that we can enter into the throne room with great grace and with great confidence, the reason that we can know that we're children of God, the reason that we can celebrate that one day we will be with him, the reason that I can think, this is just extraordinary, this salvation, is that God accepted the payment of his son. That's it. And that's why in 1 Corinthians it says, therefore, you were bought with price. therefore, glorify God. Respond back to it. Respond back to this wonderful, wonderful salvation by glorifying God. And finally, oh, I should have done that. i oh, just rubbish at this. I've got it down here when to press it, but I never press it. Finally, the priesthood of all believers. Hebrews 7, verse 26 and 27. This is our final point, and we'll do it on that. For it was fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of people. Since he did this once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What does all that mean? It just means that we have just watched through numbers the Levites who will become priests. Who will serve but we, we have a greater priest in whom we now serve. We have a greater priest. Let's explain this. Jesus is sinless. It says there, we have a priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated, uh, separated from sinners, exalted above the heaven. No other priest could say that. The guys that we were looking at in numbers, they could not ever say that. They were all sinful like you and me And yet they ministered before the Lord Not Jesus He was tempted in every way But he didn't give in He was sinless He didn't have to offer sacrifices for himself No He offered himself as a sacrifice He does not need daily Like those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins. And then for the sins of people. No, he doesn't have to do that. Why? Because he died once for all. The cross was a demonstration. Of that Just once for all. He offered up himself. The sacrifice of himself. The, the Greek word is an incredible word. Uh, it is epap, ep, epapax. Epapax. Once for all. What does that mean? It means the effect that it may, that it has, is to make Jesus the center of history, once for all, that even in the times that we are reading about in numbers, every work of God's grace in history, before the sacrifice of Jesus was looking forward to the death of Jesus as its foundation that's what these people were doing it was beginning to open up to them it was be, they were beginning to see they were beginning to learn they were beginning to get excited that one day there would be one person who would die once and for all it was an, imma- an event that would occur in history and every work of God's grace since the sacrifice of Jesus looks back at the cross and says this is the foundation of which everything is standing on So even before history, they were looking forward and saying, this is it, and we're standing there, there they are, over here, the guys in in Numbers, they're going... That's it. It's over there. That's the point in history. That will make the difference. I can see just beginning to pick. And we're backing over here like this. And we're going, 2,000 years. That was the thing. That was the incredible thing. It was that cross. And together, the noise comes from, the, from history one way and into history the other. And accumulated this one central point in history. Jesus died once and for all. Amen. And I'm knackered. It says here that all the priests did it in their weaknesses, but Jesus had the strength to do the job they ministered in weakness, oh stink, got up late! What about the sacrifice? Get your gear on, just do the sacrificial stuff, get all the made it into the presence of God. I oh, didn't get it quite right this morning. Had a row with so-and-so on the way. The, the Israelites had tipped the sewage in the thousand guards. There, seven people died. They shouldn't have gone over. Oh, so, what happened to Jesus? No. He got the strength to do the job. Just think how many times they cocked it up. Time after time after time. Oh, I didn't get the robe on quite right. The names are supposed to be on my shoulders. They're down by me bum and all that sort of stuff. You know. and what did Jesus do? He had got the strength to say on the cross, It is finished. They couldn't even get dressed properly. He could declare, It is finished. You know, sometimes I've got both my children here. So I've got to be careful. (laughs) This was written before I knew this. Actually, I did know this, but I didn't comprehend this. You know, sometimes uh, as you get older, your children begin to consider that, that mom and dad won't live to take care of them. And sometimes as mum and dad, we look and we think, I don't want to leave them, because who will take care of them? And it is an incredible thought that sometimes just overwhelms both parties. They just expect that mum and dad will be there. And I expect that I will be, well not mum, I expect I'll be dad. But the priesthood of Jesus, the one who prays for us, the one who is sympathetic with us, the one who is there day and night, the one who never slumbers, will be able to break through decades, centuries, millennium, if it is required, because he is a priest forever. Forever. And I can look to that, and I can think, he... Is there forever? So, even in this uncertainty, it can bring me certainty. So, when you look to numbers, I believe numbers can be extraordinarily exciting because it shows us the gospel, it shows us God's Lordship shows us god's substitution it shows us the redemption and it shows us more than that a great high priest who died once and for all amen